Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, show number 325, where we interview Tim Delaney and talk about buying a small business with low money down and turning it into an amazing cash flowing asset through hard work. With this particular business, it didn't work out. I didn't buy that business, but it kind of opened my eyes to the idea of the banks are willing to give me money and the seller might be willing to, to finance a little bit of that, of that transaction. And I can actually buy myself a paycheck day one as opposed to gambling and starting a business from scratch and never really knowing when I was gonna make enough money to actually pay myself. So that prospect of buying a business became much more front and center and much more interesting. And I more actively started pursuing business ideas or um, businesses to purchase. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen. And with me as always is my amazing cash flowing investment through hard work co-host, Scott Chetch. And with me, as always, is my intoxicated with the numbers co-host, Mindy Jensen. (laughs) I like that. Scott and I are here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else, to introduce you to every money story, because we truly believe that financial freedom is attainable for everyone, no matter when or where you're starting. That's right. Whether you want to retire early and travel the world, go on to make big time investments in assets like real estate or start your own business or buy an existing business, we'll help you reach your financial goals and get money out of the way so you can launch yourself towards those dreams. Scott, we are talking to Tim Delaney today. He is a small business owner and an absolutely wonderful saint who is better than everybody in every single way. Just kidding. Not really. He volunteered for the Peace Corps and then he moved to Ethiopia to help a German company uh, help the Ethiopian country industrialize their economy. And then he pivoted to help small businesses learn how to grow using social media. And then he wanted to start his own business. So he started looking for businesses. He's just like this give, give, give kind of guy. And then he found this business that he wanted to buy. He decided he, he ran the numbers. That's very, very important. He ran the numbers and he has an amazing very lucrative business that he works, what did he say, 10 hours a week in now, Mm -hmm. now after nine short years, overnight success in nine short years, and is really living the life that he wants to live through one of the four uh, levers that we suggest pulling, save, invest, start your own business, or what's the other one? Create. Create. Well, that's this one. Start your own business. Yeah. Spend less, earn more, invest and create. Yes. Okay. There we go. Spend less, earn more. That's when I forgot. Uh, but he's earning more. He is spending less and he is creating this business, which is, which he did not create from scratch, but is growing it exponentially and crushing it. Yeah. Th- this is a great story. And what I think you're going to really like about Tim's story is how repeatable it is. This is not a guy who had a huge head start financially in a lot of ways. This is somebody who, um, bought a liquor store and put everything he had into it and was able to turn that into a success. And the reason for that is hard work and intelligence, yes, but also really good strategy. This is the asset class, and I mentioned this later in the show as well, that I think Americans today have the best chance of becoming wealthy in. There are 12 million baby boomer owned businesses right now that are expected to come up for sale in the next decade or so. 12 million businesses of this type, small businesses that generate Fifty, a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars in cash flow or, or net operating profits. You can buy these businesses for one, two times cash flow, maybe even less in some cases, plus inventory, right? And, and then, and then 
these are businesses in many cases that don't have any systems implemented, that um, are not using technology. They don't even have websites or or basic um, online presence like social media. And, and there's a huge opportunity here for, I think, the um, young or ambitious entrepreneur um, who wants to get out of the, the corporate nine to five to buy this business. And, and guess what? You're going to take a small pay cut at first. You're going to do a lot of hours um, at first. But if you are diligent and thoughtful and buy the right business and put the right systems in, you can expand profits, make the business exponentially more valuable and create a passive stream of income that can open up other options downstream. So I, I really am excited about this asset class. I think it's something that we want to explore more here on Bigger Pockets Money. If you have a story about buying a small business and improving it over the years, we would love to hear from you. Please apply at biggerpockets.com slash guest. And I'm so excited to uh, introduce Tim here today. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply. Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So how do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers an 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split with 70% of profits going to the investors. You'll earn passive income by participating in lending to house flippers. And it's secure because senior lien holders, that's you, get paid first. Their rigorous underwriting process and the backing of the physical asset provide additional security in case of borrower default. Plus, by investing with Pine Financial Group, you contribute to the revitalization of communities by redirecting your funds from Wall Street to Main Street, supporting local economies, and generating profits simultaneously. This investment is reserved for accredited investors, but if you are not accredited, Pine Financial has options for you too. Take control of your investments and secure a stable 8% annual return today. Visit pinefinancialgroup.com biggerpockets to learn more about the fund. That's pinefinancialgroup.com biggerpockets. I used to think working from home was the dream, until it wasn't. Between the distractions and the solitude, I was struggling. But then I discovered Industrious Office, and honestly, it's been a game changer. Every day at Industrious feels like stepping into a zone of productivity. The high-speed internet never fails me during crucial moments, and the workspace? It's not only stylish, but designed to boost your focus and creativity. Plus, the daily breakfast and endless coffees are super cool. Meeting other driven professionals right where I work has not just expanded my network, it's inspired me. It's amazing how being around other focused people can push you to achieve more, you know what I mean? If you're looking for a sign to change your workspace, this is it. Check out Industrious by visiting biggerpockets.com slash industrious. Then click join now and use the promo code pockets to get a free week of co-working when you take a tour. That's biggerpockets.com slash industrious and use promo code pockets after clicking join now. Experience for yourself how the right environment can change the way you work. Industrious. It's where your best work happens. 
Tim Delaney, welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. You have such an amazing story. I am so excited to jump into this with both feet. But before we get into your current money story, let's hear a little bit about where you started. Thank you so much, Mindy. I'm really excited to be here and share my story. I've been a longtime listener and glad to be here. Um, so my money story begins when I was small. I was uh I grew up in a small family businesses. My parents owned a couple different businesses. Some were successful, some not so much. Uh, and through that, I always learned to be pretty frugal. I saved all the time uh, from allowances to first jobs. Uh, was just constantly saving. Uh, I think it, my father taught me early on, save at least half of your paycheck every single time. So that's what I was doing from a very young age. Um, I got a, my first real jobs when I was... Uh, barely old enough to work in New York State. I think I was 15. Uh, started working at a, the local coffee shop, Donut Shop at the time. I think now they're called a coffee shop. Back then it was donuts. Um, and it was just uh, just constantly saving. Uh, I worked as much as I could through high school. I tried to save. I was um, also very interested in business and the economy and the stock market. Uh, my grandmother lived with us for a brief time and she had always been a stock market uh, follower so she taught me how to read the stock pages in the newspaper because uh, i'm dating myself a little bit with that when they would publish the stock prices once a day and that's when most people would get updated on what the shares were going for on that day uh, so i just kind of learned how to how to follow share prices how to how the stock market worked from her um, at a very young age, I think I was like 11, 12. Uh, it's, you know, so I always had a, a pretty good understanding of money and, and the economy and uh, how businesses operated. Um, but then I guess, you know, around the time of college, I went off to college. I started spending all of that savings that I had saved up for college. I started accumulating some some student loans. Uh, that was my my arrangement with my parents was that I had to take as much loans as I could in order to fund the school that I wanted to go to. So I started accumulating those loans. Um, but at the same time, I, I guess I, my, a little bit different than some students in the sense that I had been educated about credit cards and their dangers. I had a credit card, but I was always taught you only spend what you can pay off every single month. Uh, I s took that, I still follow that principle today, so which uh, helped me a lot. So the only debt that I graduated from college with was that student loan debt. I think it was around $22,000 uh, at the time. I think we're, you know, we're in year 2002. So at that point, right after I graduated, I, uh, had an opportunity. I kept getting emails about consolidating my student loans and I didn't really pay attention to them at first and then finally read them and understood what that meant and was able to lock in a uh, ridiculously low interest rate. Uh, looking back on it, uh, I think I was below 3%. So it was consolidate, lock in, and then I really kind of never had to, um, you know, they were always there looming, but it wasn't uh, as pressing because it was such a low interest rate. Uh, after college, I, um, I took a year, worked part-time while I was waiting to go into the Peace Corps. So then I deferred my student debt, which, so the interest kept accumulating. But again, it wasn't horrible because of the, the, the low rate. 
And I joined the Peace Corps about a year after college, uh, volunteer basis, so accumulating uh, absolutely zero dollars in country uh, where I was stationed. And the Peace Corps is very generous. And at least at the time, they were putting $200 a month into a savings account that I could access when I left service. Uh, most volunteers stay for 24 months. I stayed for 36, so I could earn that extra year of $200 a month in savings that I was really looking forward to tapping into when I get out. Um, so, yeah, so when I finished uh, Peace Corps, I still had the student loan debt. I think I actually even had to start paying on that while I was still in the Peace Corps because my two or three years of deferment eligibility were up. Uh, but I, so I continued paying that. I had this very small amount from the Peace Corps and I went to Ethiopia to take a job with a nonprofit out of Boston um, who I had done a brief internship with right out of college. Uh, I learned um, kind of, I guess it was like one of the first things I did where I learned to just kind of take a chance and take a risk and go for it. Um, I was communicating with my old boss at the time, and he said, just come on over here. We'll find a job for you when you get here. And with the little savings I had in my bank account, the idea of just jumping on a plane to go to Ethiopia without a locked-in job or uh, a contract was a little daunting, but I took it anyway. Um, so while I was in Ethiopia, um, continued to save. I, I took that job. I, I worked that job for about a year and then I transitioned to a German company and I actually started getting paid a more nominal amount plus a little cost of living allowance. And that's where I was able to really accelerate my savings. Uh, I never bothered. I, I contemplated paying down my student loans because I could, but the interest rate was just too low. It didn't seem to make sense. So uh, those couple years with the German company is where I really accelerated my savings. I lived very frugally. My wife and I, my wife had joined me in Ethiopia. We lived as frugally as we could. Um, we really enjoyed our time. We didn't, you know, we didn't make massive sacrifices, but we lived very, very frugally, very comfortably within our means so that we could continue to save and um, stockpile some funds for future endeavors. Awesome. So what was your, what was your position um, kind of at the end of this journey towards the end of your time in Ethiopia? Um, I had probably saved up uh, around, probably around 60 to 70,000 US. Uh, that was in a bank account in Europe, um, some in stocks in Europe, because I was getting paid in euros at the time. I kept it in euros as long as I could. Uh, so it was, that was that was the cash position. I still had quite a bit of student loans. I don't remember exactly how much, but I was just making the minimum payments throughout on those. Other than that, I didn't really have any any other assets, any other debt at all. That was kind of it. Awesome. And wh how long? When did you? Uh, when, when did your um, stay in Ethiopia end, and you came back to the states? We moved back to the states in 2010. I maintained my job. With the Ethiopian, with the German company for uh, for about another year and a half or so, working remotely from Buffalo, uh, helping them out uh, on a consultancy basis, and uh, yeah, so we continued working for them for about a year and a half. Awesome. Okay, so it's 2011 and a half, uh, and and you've got sixty seventy five thousand dollars ish in, in total net worth. And it sounds like that's your time at the German company coming to an end. What happens next? 
So in that interim period, while I was first, after I first moved home, I was intent on starting a business. Um, I kind of played around with a little uh, importing business with some some things from Ethiopia, some iPad sleeves and some other leather goods. And none of that was really panning out to the level that I wanted to. And that savings was was depleting because I was spending it on on possible business ventures. Cost of living here was much higher for us than it had been in Ethiopia. Uh, so that, that savings was dwindling a little bit. And then somewhere in that time period when I was playing around with starting businesses, an opportunity to buy a business fell into my lap. And I had thought about buying a business, but never really seriously considered it because I, I felt like if somebody was selling their business, it was at its max value and therefore it wouldn't have very much benefit to me. Um, but with this particular business, it didn't work out. I didn't buy that business, but it kind of opened my eyes to the idea of the banks are willing to give me money and the seller might be willing to, to finance a little bit of that, of that transaction. And I can actually buy myself a paycheck day one, as opposed to gambling and starting a business from scratch and never really knowing when I was going to make enough money to actually pay myself. So that prospect of buying a business became uh, much more front and center and much more interesting. And I more actively started pursuing business ideas or um, businesses to purchase. Uh, and that is where I transitioned into looking for consulting opportunities for local businesses that needed help with social media. In 2010, 11, 12, Facebook was still relatively new, especially in the business realm. I had been active on it personally for a while and felt like I could add some value to businesses uh, in teaching them what to do, how to do it, and uh, you know, trying to build their businesses that way. I also had an ulterior motive of hoping to come across a business that was looking to get out and maybe meeting the right person and being able to transition. Awesome. So this is an intentional process to buy a business that you began in late 2011-ish, um, and, and you begin and, and you begin uh, experimenting with things. You're doing research. You're actively consulting for small businesses from a marketing standpoint, it sounds like. How, how long does that time period last? And, and, and how do you end up, uh, what, what ends up happening? So that was a, a little over a year. Uh, the whole time I was still engaging with uh, business brokers. I was still looking online at Craigslist, bizbysell.com. I was having regular coffees and lunches with accountants and lawyers that uh, I was networking with asking them for leads, telling them what I was trying to do uh, in the effort of trying to find that right business that I could ultimately buy and grow. Uh, and that happened around the end of 2012 is when this my uh, wine and liquor store came up and I put it under contract. I have a really quick question. You were looking to buy a business in 2011. That seems like counter to what everybody else is doing in the room because weren't people going out of business then? I guess so. It's, um, <laughs> you know, I, I lived in Ethiopia during the height of the financial meltdown of 2007, 8, 9, 10. And for me, it wasn't as, um, it, 
we didn't feel the effects as much. Uh, partially because I was getting paid by a, a, a government, a quasi-governmental company. There was never a danger that we were, you know, we were never in danger of losing our funding. They had a multi-year contract with the Ethiopian government. And so I think when I came back in 2010, I, I knew, you know, I knew that there had been a, you know, stock market meltdown. I knew that there had been a crisis. I knew that small businesses were suffering to some extent, but it never felt as real to me, I guess maybe because I didn't have the assets that lost massive value and I wasn't actively in it at the time. Um, I, yeah, that's, I guess, I mean, and then on the other hand, I, I guess I'd like to say that I was, you know, running in when everybody else was running out, but I honestly, I don't think that was the case for me. It was just more of a, it never felt as bad as it did to other people at that time. That was the the quote that was running in my mind was be fearful when others are greedy yeah. and be greedy when others are fearful. And I was like, oh, he's, he's doing this. So just take the win. I was doing it on <laughs> purpose. I was living Warren Buffett's life. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish I could say that was really it, but I, I, I it was partially, I guess, I mean, maybe, maybe partially, but maybe subconsciously, but it's more of just, I, I knew that there were still businesses, they were still operating, you know, as bad as it got, there were still, you know, there's, there were still other businesses that were successful and still going forward. And, and, and to that point, there were some business owners that were tired, that were feeling the effects and, and we're ready to get out. You know, that was when I started hearing that baby boomers were ready to ready to start selling and they were going to be retiring and getting rid of their small businesses in droves. Still hearing that today, but that's a really good point. And were you looking specifically for physical businesses or were you looking for online businesses or were you open to whatever? So because of my knowledge of social media and e-commerce to some extent, I was looking ideally for a physical business that had not moved online yet. That was kind of my criteria. And I was not industry specific. Um, and it, in fact, I at first just ignored a couple of wine and liquor stores that had been sent my way because I knew that selling wine and liquor online would be a huge challenge. And I was looking for something that would be a little bit uh, easier transition into the online into the online space. What, what piqued your interest about this specific liquor store? So when this specific liquor store came across my desk, I, I guess I just had time to actually look at the numbers. And when I did and I saw the location of it, uh, it was a location that I knew uh, from a friend in high school whose parents had moved out to this particular town. And I knew that there were um, more and more people moving out there. Uh, it's a suburb of the Buffalo area, and it is traditionally a farming uh, town where there's lots of land and low taxes. And so people had been moving out there, buying big pieces of land, putting up very expensive houses. But there was also a very good base of loyal customers, the kind of, you know, that I still have to this day that are very loyal, supporting small business. Um, at one point before I bought the liquor store in my, you know, in my research about the town, there had been a Rite Aid that had tried to move into the town and the town would not allow it because they already had a locally owned pharmacy. They weren't going to allow a Rite Aid to move in. So it's, you know, that, that kind of town, that great core customer base that loves small business. And then I knew that there were more and more people moving out there every single year and they continue to move out there. What were the, the sellers like and their motivations for selling? 
Uh, they're fantastic people. They had owned the store for about 20 years. Uh, you know, again, and again, like with buying a business, you get the history of the business with it and that, that long, that stability that, that comes with it. The, the business had been there for about uh, close to 50 years at that point. Uh, the sellers that I purchased it from owned it for 20 years. They purchased it from another family that had owned it for almost 20 years who had purchased it from the founders that had owned it for a few years. Um, so the sellers were just looking to, to retire. They, uh, uh, the gentleman had retired from a telecommunications company with a nice pension. Uh, the wife had been running this liquor store for 20 years and they were just ready to spend more time with their grandkids and uh, travel more. Awesome. And so what, what were the numbers that attracted you? What, 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 what piqued your interest once you got into the, the spreadsheets? I guess the, the biggest thing was that it was profitable enough to pay myself a wage, a, a small salary day one. And the, the economics of the town and the, the products that they were selling, I knew that I would be able to increase the quality and the price points uh, and bring in some different stuff that would ultimately drive sales up quite a bit. Um, but it, that it was really that, that initial thing was I knew I'd be able to pay myself day one and I knew that there was a huge potential for growth. What was the, how, how did that work between, was it a pay cut to go in and, 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 and run the business versus your pr previous job or was it about the same or how, how did that pencil out for you? It was a pay cut from the working for the German company, uh, but it was about on par with what I had been making doing the consulting gigs. Uh, it was never that was never a super lucrative venture for myself because I never really wanted it to be a long term thing. I, um, I I didn't like the idea of getting into consulting long term where I'm just was, would be constantly trading my time for money. I knew that I didn't want to tie myself into that forever. What were, the, what were some of the big opportunities you saw in the business um, the, in, in this underwriting stage or what it first, what, what were some of the, the opportunities to, to build it that, that attracted you? Uh, so product selection, number one, but then also technology. Uh, the sellers were using an old fashioned cash register with, you know, every, every single bottle in the store had a old fashioned price tag on it, you know, nine ninety nine. So it, it, Somebody bring it up to the counter and you'd hit 999 uh, taxable wine, 999 taxable liquor. And so the idea of bringing in, bringing in a point of sales system uh, right away uh, and then also introducing social media. They had no website. They had no social media. And I knew that as challenging as selling wine would be online, I knew that I would be able to do it to some level. Uh, so I knew that we would be able to expand that way as well. Aside, going to the first one, aside from cutting out work, what are the advantages of installing a point of sale system like that? What, what, what business outputs that impact the P&L happen? Uh, number one, tracking inventory. So in a business where you have thousands of bottles or probably, you know, thousands of products in a store at any given time, being able to know exactly how many of those bottles or how many of each product you have is super vital to making purchasing decisions to being able to track where you're, you know, what's selling, what's not selling, how fast they're selling, um, what your gross margins are on various products and various segments of products. Uh, so that's, it's, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, that those are the biggest things right there. 
information is king. Yeah, obvious advantages to being able to drive your business forward a few months, few years down the road. Exactly. Yep. There's you know. So day one, it doesn't. Besides tracking the bottles, it doesn't give you a lot. But now uh, nine years into it, I can still go back and see what products were trending when, and you can look up seasonality of different products, and you know, sell more tequila sales start going up in May, and. Uh, you know, red wines sales start going up in September. And so we know to, to adjust our inventory levels based on those things as well. So a few moments ago, you said, I had time to look at the numbers when Scott asked what made this one so uh, intriguing to you. And I just want to highlight that for a moment. If you don't have time to look at the numbers on a on a business, don't buy the business. You have to have time to really digest these numbers. And yes, this was 2011 and we're in 2022 now, or 2012 and we're in 2022 now. Still, if you don't have time to, to look at the numbers and really understand what you're getting yourself into, then you don't have a business that you want to be able to purchase. And that also, you know, that includes anything like uh, any kind of investment. Um, if you can't digest those numbers, if you don't understand what you're getting into, stop and take a minute. And, you know, in the spring, we had this uh, super high real estate market where people were like, I'm just getting in with both feet. And I'm like, oh, that's such a bad idea unless you know what you're doing already. Um, but I want to look at the numbers that you were looking at at the time because you didn't I mean, you bought a really, really nice business for not a huge money, not a huge amount of money out of your pocket. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I agree 100 percent. It's important to look at the numbers, and it's important to look at the numbers repeatedly. I, I, um, you know, I, I think Brandon Turner says it all the time. Just analyze property. You know, in the real estate world, analyze as many properties as you can, and you start building that muscle for for how to do it. Um, and with this one, when I looked at the numbers, I, like I wouldn't have, I would have just ignored it because it was a wine and liquor store, but. I decided to look at the numbers and I was really impressed with the numbers. So I dug further. Let's go. What were the numbers and how'd you purchase it? Um, yeah. So uh, they were doing about $600,000 a year in sales at, for the for the previous couple of years prior to me purchasing it. Um, gross margins in wine and liquor stores are about 25%, um, maybe a little bit higher if you're doing really well and finding good deals and a little bit lower if not. And they were on the lower end of what should be, um, you know, what, what should be expected. So I knew that there was room to improve the margins a little bit. And I think that goes back to the point of sales question too, Scott. I think the way that, you know, if you're not tracking every day what you're paying for your products and what you're selling them for, it it, you can kind of get lost in the shuffle. And we that's something we routinely review nowadays just in case we miss something. Um, the sellers were taking a, a salary of about $100,000 a year. And so that's where, you know, in profit, they weren't showing a ton of actual bottom line profit. Uh, but I knew that between the investments that I wanted to make in technology and purchasing more inventory, there would still be enough left over to pay myself at the end of the year, as long as the sales continued to be where they were. But I had aspirations of improving those sales right from day one, anyway. Awesome. What would you? Uh, so, so how, what did you purchase the business? What, what does a business like that sell for, and how did you finance it? Yeah. So the purchase price for the business, which was just basically the assets, the inventory, the shelving and equipment, 
and the goodwill of the sellers uh, was $200,000. So uh, the goodwill is basically everything intangible about the business. So, um, sorry, correction. The inventory was not included in that $200,000. That was on top of the $200,000. So most of what I'm purchasing for that $200,000 is just the name, the, the shelving, which is really not worth much on the secondary market, and the kind of the goodwill of the of the sellers. Uh, and then the inventory was anticipated to be around $150,000 when I purchased it. Again, because they didn't have a point of sale system and an inventory tracking system, they didn't know exactly how much inventory they had. So we, it was agreed that we would count it right before closing and that would be the final number. Um, so it was $200,000 plus the inventory of what was supposed to be about $150,000. I applied for bank financing. All um, right, my, my offer to them was the 200,000 plus the 150 for inventory, so 350 total. I applied for bank financing of around $250,000, and I asked the sellers to hold a note of about $50,000, and then I was going to put in the other $50,000 myself. Uh, that was the original plan. The bank actually came back to me pretty quickly with an approval of the loan, but they wanted to give me more money than I asked for because they wanted to make sure that I had enough working capital to cover uh, expenses and to um, make some improvements, make some investments in the business. What bank did you go to for this? Uh, this was through a regional bank called M&T Bank. Uh, they are very well versed in SBA financing. Uh, so they're, you know, if you're going to be buying a business, I would highly recommend finding a bank that has experience with the SBA, the Small Business Administration, because the SBA essentially helps the bank guarantee the loan. So the banks feel, you know, there's certain parameters that they have to follow and, you know, boxes that they have to check with a buyer and with the business. But essentially the SBA will back or guarantee a certain amount of the loan for the bank so they can feel a little bit more comfortable making a quote-unquote risky investment. Awesome. And, and so it sounds like they're very comfortable with this type of project. And um, the seller financing, is that is that a common tool used in this type of purchase? I believe so. Uh, it's something that I was uh, highly recommended to ask for and to, to, to do. Uh, the Banks and the SBA actually really like to see that uh, on top of, you know, it, it helps them get get the approval for the loan faster because they they know that if the seller is holding a portion of the note, that the seller knows that it's not just a complete, uh, you know, complete bomb of a business They're, you know, if they want to get paid out, they've got to make sure that the business continues to run. And that means, you know, being around to answer questions if something comes up down the line. You know, I think officially we had like a two-week consulting period tied into the contract. But uh, in reality, the, you know, the owner, um, unfortunately, the, the woman passed away a couple of years ago, but her husband still comes into the store and I could still, in theory, ask him questions if I needed help with something. So, uh, they're, you know, they have that vested interest in, making sure the business carries on uh, and and su succeeds because they get paid only if the business continues and succeeds. If you could go back and rewrite the contract, would you continue with just a two-week consulting period or would you make that a little longer? That seems short to me, but I've also never bought a business. 
I think it de- really depends on the type of business. I I was comfortable with that because I also knew that the sellers, or I was fairly certain that the sellers were going to let me start coming around prior to closing the sale or to closing the deal. So I did, you know, I did learn a lot leading up to that. Um, I, and I, I, it might have been a two week hands on and then a couple months where they had to be available for, uh, for questions or, you know, if I had things that needed addressing. But yeah, I think depending on the type of business, I would recommend a longer period if it's something that is really complicated and hard to wrap your head around, uh, then you can, you know, you're free to ask for however much you want. Some people don't want the, the old owners to stick around because they might be set in their ways and they might not like what you're doing with their baby and their business. So it may or may not be beneficial always to, to keep them around. That's a really good point. Okay, well, let's talk about the uh, slight changes that you made to this company as soon as you bought it. Yeah, so uh, as I mentioned earlier, the point of sale system uh, was the first and biggest thing. And again, being able to get in there a little bit early, I went through in the weeks leading up to the sale and uh, scanned in every single SKU in the store so that the barcodes were all in my system, ready to go day one. I got spreadsheets from the distributors. So the, the you know the sellers just wrote everything. They wrote their orders down in a marble notebook uh, every day, every week of what they were going to order. So I was able to contact the distributors and get spreadsheets printouts of what had been ordered over the last few months. So I had product titles and I had um, cost of goods amounts that I could put into my system and then I could read the sale prices on the shelf and put those, uh, you know, the, the customer facing sale prices in the system so that day one. So we were we were scheduled to close on a Monday morning uh, in May. Sunday, we spent um, we met at the store probably about 8 a.m. Sunday morning. I had a, a, like six or seven friends that came with me. The seller had six or seven people that they um you know, they knew and trusted and we, everybody paired off, partnered off and we went through and counted. I had printed off my spreadsheets of what I, you know, all the products that I thought were in the store at the time. And so everybody went through and had different sheets and counted every single bottle in the store. I spent the rest of Sunday night inputting all of those quantity numbers into a final spreadsheet and into my point of sale system so that we could get a final cost of all the inventory. Uh, that the sellers then double checked themselves and that the final cost of the inventory actually ended up only being a little over a hundred thousand instead of 150,000. Um, which is a little thing to be aware of, I guess, if you're ever do buy a business to plan for different contingencies on whether the inventory is going to might end up higher or lower at closing. If they, if there's not a good system in place where they can give you an accurate projection, um, because in retrospect, if the inventory number had been significantly higher, uh, we might have had problems at the closing table with where the additional money was coming from to to buy it. Um, but because it was lower, it was beneficial to me. I was able to put some extra money in the bank account to have some additional working capital. Uh, so that the point of sale system was the biggest and first thing that we did. Um, number two was setting up the website, social media accounts, which I had started getting set up before closing. 
Uh, and so we started rolling with those right away. And when I say we, I mean me. Uh, it was all me at first. And so just regular posting every day, uh, multiple times a day, introducing people to new products, teaching them about the differences between products, uh, terminology, all those kinds of good things. Um, and then eventually I got into you know, payroll software and hourly tr you know, employee time tracking software and building out standard operating procedures. I have a library of uh, screen recordings of how I do different tasks so that my managers and assistant managers can, uh, you know, if they forget how they were taught something, they can go in and look at those videos and, and see the screen share of how it was done, uh, which is, you know, I, I think those types of things are super helpful for any business owner. Well, let's zoom in on the first year. So you did $600,000 in sale prior to closing and uh, prior to you buying the business and about 150,000 in gross margin. Now, did you own, the, did the business come with real estate or was there a lease attach, attached with uh, the business? There was a lease. Actually, there wasn't a lease. I had to sign a new lease in order to get my liquor license. Um, they had been in the same location for the entire life of the business, which about 50 years at the time. Uh, the landlord had purchased the building I think in 1970-ish, um, and then he built out an additional plaza next to it. So, but it was a lease. Um, yeah, we were, we were at least, and I signed a five-year lease to start out with. Okay, so, so you have 150000 in gross profit minus the cost of the lease and then any employees you pay. Um, so what, is, what does that come out to, like 80000 in profit, potentially? Um, yes, but it wasn't that much the first year because it went right back into additional uh, inventory. Um, it, the, you know, the, the website, the, uh, the point of sales service, the, the iPads and some of the technology kind of ate into that, uh, ate into that the first year. So it was, it was considerably lower the first, first couple of years. Awesome. And what's your life like this during this these for this first these first year couple of years? How much how much are you working and how much are you able to to generate in, in net profit or wages from the business for yourself? Um, I started out paying myself about five hundred dollars a month the first few months, and then I started increasing that to five hundred dollars a week when I felt a little bit more comfortable. Um, my wife and I were living very frugally. We had a uh, uh, let's see, she would have been about 18 months at the time, uh, our new baby. So we were living as frugally as we could with a newborn child. We were renting an apartment at the time. And we had kind of, as you, you may have mentioned earlier, I kind of put everything we had into this business. Um, you know, we, we working for a German company uh, and prior to that being a volunteer, I had never had a 401k or an IRA or any type of formal retirement plan. So everything I had was semi-liquid, you know, after, after tax stock market, you know, stock portfolio. So we liquidated everything, put it all into it. So we were watching our, our pennies very closely the first couple of years. I was working 50 plus hours a week, um, you know, most of that was by myself in the store. I only had a couple part-time employees to start out. Uh, I could have hired more right off the bat, but we probably would have only been eating ramen, which uh, wouldn't have gone over so well with the baby. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a, it was a pretty tight first couple of years, I would say. 
when did start when did things start improving for the business or when it began growing um it, it did start growing right away um i was i had a goal of 10 percent sales growth every year uh, we mostly hit that every single year since then uh fell short a couple of very sh- little short a couple times um so it was growing. I was just choosing to reinvest a lot of that money into growing the inventory and, and constantly and then, you know, starting to hire more people that I could lean on a little bit more so that I could free up more of my time to think bigger, uh, work on the business instead of in the business. Uh, so that it, 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 even though there was on paper what looked like a pretty decent uh, bottom line coming into the business every year, a lot of that money just went, just kept, I just kept rolling right back into the business as a means of growing and looking at the, the longer term, bigger picture. Does more inventory mean more sales in your business? Um, not direct correlation. You know, just because you have the inventory doesn't mean you're going to sell more, but like more selection. It's, it's hard to, yes. So bigger selection, adding more products um, is very important, especially nowadays. It's a, constant we see now more than i've ever seen in my you know nine years in the business people are grabbing something different every time they come in the store they want to try new 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 uh and the the big brands are rolling out new products constantly so it's a balancing act of trying to bring in as much new stuff as we can without getting stuck with too much of the old stuff um it's a uh you know that's everyday challenge when it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply. Saving for a down payment, a wedding, or just looking for extra money to invest? Monarch Money turns your budgeting woes into wins. That's why the Wall Street Journal named it the best budgeting app overall. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash pockets. Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it easy to manage your money like a pro. Add a partner or family member to your account for no extra cost. So combined finances become a breeze. Customize your budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions, and more. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash pockets. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash pockets for your extended 30-day free trial. You're trying to save, trying to invest, but your bank account is stuck. How about we get rid of some of those unused subscriptions you forgot about? Trust me, with Rocket Money, it's easy. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. 
monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Take control over your subscriptions and cancel your unused ones with just a few taps. Create a custom budget, view spending habits, and let Rocket Money negotiate to lower your bills for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. That's rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single-family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. When did you feel like you had a business that could produce a really comfortable amount of income to, to give you a good quality of life um, and, and more free time? Where's an inflection point in this journey? I don't know if it's, well, uh, uh, two different things. So I think it could have produced a decent quality, a, a decent quality of life for me in year three, maybe uh, somewhere between two and four, if I had chosen just to stagnate the business and not reinvest constantly in inventory and, and new technology and trying out new things. You know, I, I tried launching a mobile app uh, a few years ago that didn't really take off. Um, you know, that we invested quite a bit in it. So I, I think there early on, I could have uh, set a, a life where maybe I was working 40 hours a week, 40 to 40 hours, 40, 40 to 50 hours a week and making a decent living. And uh, but just knowing that I wasn't going to get a ton of vacation time and I was going to spend most of my days at the store. Uh, but I didn't want that. I wanted to build a business that ultimately wouldn't need me there every single day. So I pushed that further than it needed to be. I would say the real inflection point where I've been able to kind of step back and not be in the day-to-day and still bring home a decent uh, uh, dividend and paycheck was in the last uh, two to three years. Awesome. And what changed or what brought about that that outcome? Um, Partially sales and margins and Profit were where they could be to sustain my me and my life and and pay enough employees and management and people that have the responsibility to to do good things with the store. Um, and part of it was I now have three children, um, a ten year old and two six year olds that I enjoy spending time with more. And my commute to the store is is it's about forty minute commute to the store for me. So. An hour and 20 minutes a day was something that was starting to get a little bit uh, tiresome for me. So I wanted to make a commitment to go less days so that I am not burning up that time uh, during the week. 
Do you have any plans to open up a second location? Uh, That's probably one of the most frequent questions I get. And the answer is no. I So it's two part. Number one, in New York State, an owner can only own one liquor store. Uh, we're a non-chain state. And number so in theory, my wife could open a store and she could run and manage her own. I was just going to ask that. So that is a possibility. I've I've been approached by other people that wanted to do joint ventures ish and let me run it from behind the scenes. Um, I I also don't like the idea of putting all my eggs in this basket either. Uh, with being in such a highly regulated industry. One change of the law could change my profitability quite drastically overnight. So uh, the big thing in New York State is that the grocery stores cannot sell wine right now, but they make a constant push to be able to sell wine. We make better margins on wine than we do on liquor. So if the grocery stores are allowed to sell wine, our margins would go down. And as many, for as many people that say, oh, I, we would still shop here, we would still shop here. I know that everybody has good intentions in their heart. I would love to buy all my meat from a butcher shop and all my flowers from a florist and all my bread from a baker. But how many of us really do that in reality nowadays? It's just so much easier to grab all of those things at the grocery store. That, that makes perfect sense to me. So, so but, but financially, what, 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 what changed there? And how, how, did your, how does your business run in perhaps the last year or the, or the year before? What, what does it look like after nine years of growth and, and what you've done to it? So I hired a really good manager, who, uh, somebody that has been working for me for uh, quite a long time now. He actually started as a one-day-a-week part-time person. Uh, and then uh, 2018, I believe, I was hiring a assistant manager. Uh, so he applied for that job and started working full-time for me. And then over the last year, he's trying at the beginning of this year, end of last year, he's transitioned into a full-time general manager. So he takes on much more responsibility for me. He's doing the scheduling. He's in charge of the, the staff. He's in charge of all the ordering, uh, in charge of scheduling tastings. And most of the day-to-day, I still handle the bookkeeping and the payroll, the actual payroll, um, and some of the marketing tasks as well. Uh, and I've also kind of given more responsibility to some other employees. I have an amazing employee that's taken on a lot of the social media posting uh, and, you know, and responding to comments, engaging with people. Um, I have other employees that have really stepped up and helping my manager with inventory management, uh, putting, you know, making sure that we're we have the space. One of our biggest challenges is always finding enough space in our store to put in the inventory we want to carry. So I have a, another amazing employee that's kind of really taken that under her wing and being responsible for the inventory. So it's it's really delegating and um, being able to trust some of these amazing people that are uh, have helped give me some of the freedom back. Um, awesome. How many hours a week are you working right now? Uh, my goal for this year was to be at the store 10 or out, ten hours or less per week. And for the most part, I've hit that this year. There's been a few weeks, you know, there's certain times where I step in more and certain times where I've been able to do a little bit less. So it's, I, I'd say I'm pretty on course with my goal this year. And what about next year? Uh, probably the same. I, I'm, I'm, my biggest thing is whether or not I went to hand off bookkeeping, uh, partially because it's something I know that 
I could hire somebody to do pretty easily, but it's something I really enjoy doing. And it's something that allows me to keep my finger on the pulse of knowing exactly what's going on in a, on a regular basis. What is the, what does the business look like today in terms of size? Like, um, it sounds like it's probably grown a lot and increased in value. Do you have any, any thoughts around that? Yeah. So I would say that we've at least forexed in total value from the time I've purchased it. Um, I think that, you know, and then if you add in inventory, it would be substantially more. We've, we carry about three and a half times more inventory than I did when I bought it. Um, we are, and we're turning it over much faster than we ever used to. So that's, it's a, that's a, a fine line in any inventory heavy businesses, making sure that you can turn that inventory on a regular basis. I was given the advice when I got into this by another liquor store owner that said 90 day turns. So you want to sell your inventory every 90 days. All, all of it should turn over every 90 days. So four turns a year. Um, and we're hitting that plus a little bit more right now over the last couple of years. So I'm happy with that. Um, so yeah, the, the equity wise for the, the, the little I invested in it cash has, uh, gone up exponentially. Do you have any plans or opportunity to expand this location? Like if you're in a strip mall and then the, the directly next door unit goes vacant, can you expand that way? Rather, they like, do you have the ability to do that? Or does your, I don't know how liquor licenses work. In, in theory, yes, we could. Um, my focus over the last couple of years has been growing online. So where we can just pack and ship and not have to um, build out the retail front anymore. Uh, I am in a strip mall. I actually was able to purchase that strip mall in 2019. Um, <laughs> yeah, hey, wait, yeah. we didn't talk I guess, about that. Did I miss that part I, of the story? I, I guess so. I, I, I consider that part of my real estate journey, so I, I, I kind of don't bring it up in the oh. in the liquor store. And but I, I, you know, I guess to that point, it did. It, it, it is, you know, that's I guess one of those, those reasons that I didn't transition sooner into a more passive role is because I was constantly looking to reinvest my money. Um, so I had an opportunity late 2018. Uh, the, the owner of the plaza was looking to retire. He had always told me I had been, you know, again, this is one of those things where you just, you ask, you constantly put it out there what you want. I had kind of been asking him or bothering him every few months for the time that I had owned the liquor store that if he ever wanted to sell the plaza, I'd be interested if he ever wanted to sell. And in like mid to late 2018, uh, I happened to be talking to him and I said it again. And he's like, oh, yeah. He said, somebody was just offering me money for the plaza. I was thinking about taking it. I was like, John, I've been telling you for years. I want to buy the plaza. He's like, oh, I didn't think you were serious. People have said that to me, too. Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing. And I, it's, that's just to that point of really just constantly hammering the point to everybody around you of what you're looking to do uh, really pays off. Uh, so... I did purchase the plaza. I have an amazing tenant in the unit next to my liquor store uh, that is will be there for a while. And it's a weird plaza. I, I think I mentioned earlier, he, my, land, my former landlord bought the liquor store building and then he built out the plaza next to it. But he left about a four foot gap in between my store and the next unit. So he kind of built a new building. So if I did ever want to knock down the wall, I would have to knock down two walls and try to connect them. It would be 
a much bigger project than just knocking a hole in one wall, unfortunately. So it's a possibility. It's not not highly likely right now, but I wouldn't ever rule it out in the distant future. Okay, well, let, let's zoom out here because we got we got a lot to cover now, and and we're actually <laughs> almost an hour. So, okay, so yeah. we have a, we have a business that you bought for uh, you put everything into it in 2011, 2012. Um, and had a successful outcome here. You're able to generate a good amount of income. Um, certainly not a, a you know a crazy amount of income. Probably not probably not even not anywhere close to six figures for the first couple of years. Rounding out six figures, I guess, in the later years. And now it's a, now it's in that ballpark passively or semi passively today. Is that is that a good way to frame it? That's that's a very good assessment. I and I, I guess you know in full disclosure, I put about thirty everything I had at the time in 2013 was about thirty five thousand dollars. So that was everything I've put into it. Um, I was supposed to have a little bit more at closing, but luckily because of the bank financing and the seller financing, I didn't actually need it. So I was working on ways to get that <laughs> prior to closing. Now, I want to point out that you could have probably gone and got a job that would have paid more immediately Correct. in those first <laughs> three, four or five years, but you wouldn't have been building an asset that's worth close to a million dollars today um, during that same period of time. And you're probably generating more income passively today than you than you would have otherwise. You had to work harder and for less money for a few years and put it, and take some risks. But now you've got this situation. And that's before we get into your other investing activities. So let's zoom back to 2012. And can you give us your investing journey up until this point as well, in, in parallel to the building of the, of the build business here. So investing parallel to when I purchased the business was basically nothing. So when I, I took everything out of my stocks, I took everything out of my savings accounts, I put it all towards this business. And then every dollar, I mean, I guess, you know, in reality, I was reinvesting in the business all those years. So instead of pulling that money out and giving myself a 401k or uh, a self, you know, self-directed IRA, whatever. I was just taking every profit. I was paying down the principal of the loans, which, you know, so there was substantial debt payment for the first uh, five, six years. And then I re refinanced that at one point. And so extended it out a little bit longer. I just finished off paying the primary loan in 2020. Was that a cash out refinance? Yes. So what I did, I would say probably in 2015, I think I saw the interest rates potentially starting to go up. And with an SBA backed small business loan purchase, it generally is a variable rate. And so I knew that I didn't want to be in a variable rate forever. And so I think around 2015, I talked to my bankers and they were able, because I had this couple year history now, they were able to get me a locked in rate. And I took out enough money to pay off the seller's portion of the loan as well, because they were actually at a higher rate than uh, uh, I had been paying the bank. So I paid off there and I negotiated with them and got them to take a little bit less money because they were going to get the rest of their money faster. So they knocked a couple thousand dollars off of what I owed them. Uh, and then it, so I, so it was a cash out refinance, but that cash went right into paying off that seller note. So then I was down to you know uh, more one consolidated loan. Um, actually, it wasn't consolidated. For some reason, they kept my original loan. They locked in the rate. They gave me a second. The bank gave me a second loan, even though I wanted it all consolidated. But they gave me a second loan. So the first loan got paid off last year, 
And that second loan, I have, I think, about six or seven more months of payments left on. Awesome. And, and so, okay, so what do you, as the, those years are passing, you're accumulating cash to some extent because you, I assume so, in order to purchase this, um, the strip mall um, that, you, that you purchased there. What, what other, how, how does that come, come to be and what other investments are you making in the, those years, the last five, six, seven years? So I think actually in early 2018, I got introduced to Bigger Pockets. Uh, I had been, I really hadn't been accumulating much cash prior to that. I really, everything went into my cost of living personally and into uh, back into the business. Um, in 2015, my wife and I bought our primary residence. Um, we bought my uh, the house that I grew up in actually from my mother who was looking to downsize. Uh, she was able to, with the bank, she was able to gift us a the down payment. Um, so basically raised the purchase price of the house, gifted us the down payment, and then the bank covered the other 80% of the purchase price on the mortgage. Um, so that was a very fortunate situation for us to buy our primary residence. Uh, and then in I, 20, late 2017, I started, I got the real estate bug. I had always, I, I, even growing up, I just always had a inclination of, wouldn't it be nice to own a lot of real estate? But it was always something I thought you needed a lot of money to get into. And so in t- early 2018, I got introduced to Bigger Pockets. I started listening to the podcasts. I started making a couple offers on some burr opportunities on, on doubles and singles. Nothing was happening uh, in that front. And then that's when my landlord said he was willing to, to sell. And I uh, was actually able to uh, purchase the plaza with 100% financing. So I didn't need cash to purchase it. Um, he was able to, he was willing to hold a note for 90%. And I found another private lender that lent me the other 10%. And because it wasn't with a bank, he didn't seem to care that it wasn't actually my money that going into the down payment. So it was a hundred percent finance. So I didn't need cash to invest in it. It's really only in the last couple of years that I've been starting to accumulate cash and uh, making some more real estate investments. Uh, I've also been maxing out my wife and I are the, our HSA and last year was the first year we ever did a Roth IRA um, because that's um, we we just never had the cash to do it prior. My you know my accountant would always suggest doing a SEP a self employment um, IRA, but I always chose to use the cash to kind of reinvest in the business and have it available for and then and then to start these last couple of years to start having it available for more real estate purchases. Awesome. So, what's your what's your portfolio look like today? You've got the the strip mall um, in in various stages uh, stages of being paid off with with the seller financing loan. You've got the business that seems like it's, it's thriving, and you've got a couple of other rental properties. Yes, we have. I, I I the plaza I own by myself, and then I partnered up with um, somebody that I had been doing uh, business with for a few years, who is a general contractor, and that together the two of us own. Uh, we had. Eight units uh, until a few weeks ago, we just closed on a 28-unit uh, portfolio, which is seven quadplexes, uh, and that we were planning to burr all of those in over the next 12 to 18 months. Wow! <laughs> so it's been a big. The last three years have been huge for you. They've really been 
Yes. A, a, a transformational in terms of your overall financial position and your business. Correct. Yep. And it's, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to being able to, you know, I built the business to the level where I have the, the employees, the, the employees that I can afford to pay well to do what they do uh, and give me the, the more time, uh, just even mental time to focus and think about other other projects. Awesome. Um, so what, what's next for you? Um, I, it's, it's a good question. <laughs> Isn't this enough? Kind of, I, you know, I've always liked teaching people. I've never wanted to be a teacher. I actually, uh, when I got assigned to the Peace Corps, I told them I would go anywhere in the world and volunteer, do anything they wanted in the world, except for being a teacher. And they put me in a school and told me I was going to be a teacher. Never liked it, but I like talking and teaching other people. I'm, I've been toying around with the idea of trying, you know, I, trying to help other people that are interested in small business, like get their small business off the ground, um, you know, through coaching or through helping. I'm also always looking for other, other small business opportunities. I'm, uh, you know, if the right opportunity came across my plate, I would gladly purchase it and do this whole process again. You know, I, I'll, I'll discuss this in the, in the intro as well. Um, but, but there's 12 million estimated baby boomer owned businesses that are going to be for sale in like the next 10 years, I think it is, um, that date is like a couple years old next decade or so. Um, and so that like, there's nobody to buy a lot of these businesses, um, out there. They're just going to fold or they're going to keep getting the price hammered down or whatever. Like this is an opportunity, um, for businesses that have been owned family owned for many years that have not embraced technology to your point that have, you know, lots of different creative problems that involve family members who are employees and those types of things. And that knocks the sale price down, right? I mean, you, you bought a business for $200,000 that generates $150,000 in gross margin, right? That's one and a half times cash flow. That'd be like buying a $200,000 property that produces $150,000 in cash flow um, or net NOI, right? So that, I mean, do the math on the cap rate from a real estate perspective. If you're willing to do the work here, there are chances. Now you can't sell the business for a 7% cap rate in a few years with that, but so there's no, but, but this is an opportunity for entrepreneurs. And if you're thinking, Hey, I'm going to, I can either earn you know, 50, 60, $75,000 a year at my job, or I can earn slightly less, but be building an asset that can, that can give me a lot of options five or six years down the road. This is a great potential alternative for folks to consider. Absolutely. It's a, you know, that's what I tell people all the time. I mean, I get, I get called brave a lot for like jumping in and doing, you know, buying a, a business. I, I, you know, I kind of embrace that a little bit and tell other people to be brave, you know, be brave, take that chance. But it's also, I think it's almost more risky to sit in a big corporate job for your whole life. Um, you know, it, I was just talking to somebody yesterday at a get together who's about to getting ready to lay off a whole department of people because their revenue is down so much. And those are, those are the types of people that I'm, I just think they, they took that job because they felt like they were going to be secure and that was the, the secure thing to do and the safe thing to do. But they have no control over when that company is going to say, yeah, you know what, we don't need you anymore. And to, you know, to go out and take your own destiny in your own hands and uh, do something that you can be creative with, have fun uh, and grow on your own is, is the way to go, in my opinion. I think a lot of people will agree with you. Yeah. Well, what I'm hearing you say is that you have 
grown this company and then now you've passed it off the day-to-day to other people. Should something happen in your life, you could take back those hours and generate more income for yourself. You could start taking money out of the business instead of reinvesting it in the business. You have a lot more options for this. But at the same time, I'm also reading news stories that say it's so hard to hire people. It's so hard to find people. And I'm seeing news stories that are saying, well, actually, you're just not paying people enough. So how do you find that balance of paying people enough that they want to come to work every day? And at the same time, not giving people so much money that you're like, well, I could just do this myself and make this kind of money. Like, how do you incentivize people to come and how do you find really good people? Because, I mean, when you find somebody, it, it sh- they should be worth their weight in gold, but you can't do that because then you... Um, it's very tough. And I, I, you know, I don't know how my employees will feel when, feel when they hear this and what they think of their, whether they're paid enough or not. I feel like I do a very good job of attracting amazing people. Um, my staff is, you know, every single one of them is awesome in their own way. And I, I've, I've had a couple bad eggs over the years, but for the most part, I've had just really solid people. One of the things that I try to do personally in my business is, uh, flexibility to, to the extent that I can. Uh, it's, you know, we are a brick and mortar business with set opening hours. So, we do need bodies there at set times, but with my different employees, I try to be as flexible as possible to their needs. You know, uh, I have a couple um, moms with kids that work for me that are, you know, their summer hours have to have to change a little bit because now the kids are home all day, every day. And so we try to adjust our schedules. We try to, you know, make do with what we have. Um, without overhiring either, because it is a, you know, I could just go out and hire more people and have overstaffed. But to your point, it's, I don't want to get in that situation either, where I'm unnecessarily paying people to stand around and do nothing because there's not enough to do. Um, so it, it, that's the number one challenge. I think it's the number one challenge for every business. I've, I've been in some business mastermind groups and over the years, and it's always no matter whether you're the, the Fortune 100 company or the, you know, hiring your first employee company. It's it, employee management and retention is generally on the top of everybody's mind. As an employee, not the one who's hiring, I will say that when I feel respected and listened to by my boss, there is nothing that I will not do for them. And when I feel like they don't care and my opinion doesn't matter and my feelings don't matter and they're like, well, that's the schedule. You're going to have to work around it. I will do nothing for them. And so just like a little bit goes such a long way. Oh, you can't work at nine. You can work at 10. Great. I'll never schedule you at nine. Write that down. That's so easy to not do. But, you know, when you're like, well, you're going to have to figure it out. You're the employee. Nope. There's a thousand places that are hiring right now. I can just go get a different job. You're the one that's host. How long does it take to hire? So, you know, it's just it's I get that it's frustrating to be the employer, but I get that like like I've been an employee a lot and it's so easy to make your employees happy. Well, I, I completely agree with all that, right? I mean, I mean, you need to have, yeah, you need to make it a wonderful workplace to attract good people that they want to stay and do their best, right? And and that they're encouraged to think about ways to improve the business in a general sense as well, not just do the minimum with that. And it sounds like that's what you've been able to attract, Tim, to your business. Yeah, we've, I've tried my best. Um, 
it's you know i mean yeah the respect thing goes uh, goes a long way in my opinion i you know i hope that i'm doing that every day i you know i'm sure i fail once in a while uh, it's human nature but uh, I, I think the bigger challenge for me and for any business owner is now that I've put another level of management in and am there less, it will be, um, you know, hopefully I've led and coached up my manager enough that he can carry on that same same level going forward. Let, let, let's just wrap this up with one last question here. What do you think is the best advice for somebody who's trying to navigate a similar process and wants to buy a business they're agnostic about whether it's a liquor store or carpet cleaning or whatever, right? Any, any type of shop. What's the best thing that they can do to get started to follow in your footsteps? I would say uh, really just starting to pay attention to what what's around you, starting to engage with the small business owners that you come into contact with on a daily basis. You know, if, if you uh, need to take, like, take a glance at your credit card, you know, statements and look at all they you know, highlight all the the local businesses you you hit and if you don't have any on there just make it a point to start start shopping more locally and interacting with the people that are that you come into contact with at those businesses um I, I would say get your finances in order as well i mean there are you know with sba financing and seller financing there are opportunities out there to get a business with 0% down, but I wouldn't bank on that. That's, you know, I, I think you're going to need to save some capital to go into a, a business, whether even if it's just for having, you know, the, something to live off of if things don't start out on, the, on a great footing. Um, so get your finances in order, get your credit score up, get your start, you know, living a little bit frugally, save some money, put it, put it aside uh, to kind of get on that journey and then talk to as many small business owners as you can. Um, you know, I, I have a, like I, I say, be brave, be intentional and be zealous. Like just go out there, take that chance, uh, and then be very intentional about it and, and pursue it every day until you get what you want. I love it. I, I think it's a huge opportunity area in, in this, in this field, in a general sense for those who are willing to put in the work, this is a great way to make couple million dollars over the next five, 10 years, if you're willing to put in the work, I, I think it's a great, I think it's going to involve sacrifice and a few first hard years. Um, but at the end of the day, if you do it right, you can buy a business that needs technology and automation, that kind of stuff. And when the business transforms from what you bought, which is a owner operated business into something that runs itself, that's multiple expansion. You don't sell that business for one times cash flow at the end of that stage, you sell it for three to four times cash flow, most likely. Um, so you're not you're not only increasing the profits, you're increasing the the value of the business that a buyer would be willing to pay by several fact by 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 a significant magnitude. Exactly, and that's it's one of the things that I I was planning to mention as well. You know, when you are looking at a business to buy, you know, pay attention to those things like how much time does the current owner put into the business, um, him or herself? Is it something where they are, you know, they're saying that they're doing 40 hours a week, but they're actually putting in 70 or 80. And, you know, not that you shouldn't buy it, but you should be aware of it and know what your plan is going to be to to deal with that. And yeah, there is some sacrifice and it's, you know, my from my perspective, I could have taken that $35,000 and put it in index funds and let it ride for 10 years. And I probably would have been all right, except for these last couple of years, but it wouldn't have generated anywhere near 
the amount of equity that the business has done. I just want to highlight, you have to be willing to put in the work. This is not something that you are going, you're not going to find a business that is worth buying, that has the huge potential upside, and then just sit there and do it the same way that it's been done or not put in the work yourself and hire somebody to do it. Like there's a lot of upside in a lot of these businesses because they haven't kept up with the times, but you have to bring them up to current technological standards, current industry standards, current whatever standards. And that's going to take a lot of work. And if you're not willing to do it, then you're not going to see these gains. Tim spent a lot of time working in this business and now he is reaping the rewards. He, right. what do we say, Scott? He's an overnight success in nine short years. It's, and it's, it, you know, it's just like, um, you know, equivalent to real estate. Cause I know a lot of the audience is into real estate as well. The, you know, Mindy, you go out and buy houses that need a lot of work and then you fix them up and then they're worth more money. If you went and bought the house that was all pretty and nice and had everything perfect, and then you tried to sell it a few years down the line, you probably wouldn't make as much money on that on that sale as you as you do the way you do it. So it's that you know, yes, you have to put in the work. You know, I, I don't. You can buy businesses that have management in place and that have all the technology and are ready to go, and those might be great investments as a, a you know a passive investment for an accredited investor that's just looking for you know, another revenue stream that has already made a substantial uh, bit of wealth. But if you want to grow your equity, you need to be able to put in the work. Yeah, there's turnkey real estate investing and turnkey business investing. There's fix and flip business investing and fix and flip uh, real estate investing. There's buy and hold real estate investing and buy and hold uh, business investing. It's all the same thing. It's just how much, you know, and be honest with yourself. What is your level of interest? What is your level of experience? What is your level of uh, desire to fix this this business, this, you know, increase this revenue? If you want something that's going to kick off a lot of cash flow instantly, you probably don't want to buy this business that needs some work. If you want to, you know, just whatever, I don't want to do anything, then don't buy this this rehab business that you need. I'll tell you what, though, I think this is the biggest opportunity in America right now is, is this business asset class. I think the, the the opportunity for multiple expansion, buying for one times cash flow and selling for three to four over a five to seven year period with a good amount of sweat equity is there's nothing else like it right now. And I think that there's a lot of like if I was starting over at 23 and went on this journey, I would be house hacking uh, and then looking for a business like this to buy. Um, in some sort of avenue like this, a small local business that had been run for 30 years by a, you know, a, a retiring couple or, or individual who wants to sell that and keep the business moving on with tons of opportunity to bring it into the 21st century um, from a process standpoint. That's that's where money is to be made. And it's too small of an asset class for the big boys on Wall Street um, to compete with. And it's too big of an asset class for many folks to, to, that don't have good personal financial situations to pull down because you do need to have $35,000 and be able, be able to take out 100000 or a few hundred thousand dollars in small business loans to, to finance. So I, I think it's a perfect sweet spot for a lot of folks that are looking to achieve financial freedom over a five, seven year period with work. Completely agree. Yep. That's the opportunities there, just saving up that, you know, saving up that nest egg a little bit. And then the financing's there. The, the banks are, are willing to lend. Even even now, I, uh, 
I was looking at a laundromat recently that in the middle of April, I was quoted a, a low 4% interest rate uh, by for a, a SBA-backed loan because some of these loans are still coming directly from the government. They're at much lower rates than the 30-year mortgages are right now. Better than the duplex. Exactly. Uh, so, it, it, you know, it, it dep- every opportunity is a little different. That was a unique situation. It might not be that way for every laundromat out there because that involved real estate as well. But uh, it's, you know, the, the financing is still there and this, and seller financing. You know, you know, to your point earlier, Mindy, when you asked about 2011, was that a good time to buy a, a business? I, you know, I would argue that today with, you know, everybody talking about recession on the horizon and, uh, you know, inflation going where it is, there, this is prime time to find those, uh, you know, people that have been around for a while, they've been running their business somewhat successfully, been taking enough home that they're comfortable uh, but now they're not, you know, the last couple of years have been tumultuous and then we're possibly going into a recession. They might be ready to get out and they might be willing to hold that note because they know it could be tricky for you to come up with enough cash to buy them out. That's a really great point. Um, I want to give you a little bit of advice on laundromats. I have a friend who has a laundromat and he is very handy with fixing washing machines himself. And he said if he was not, it would not be a good investment for him. So if you don't know how to fix washing machines and dryers, by and dryers are like, they're easy to fix if you know what you're doing. Like everything's easy to fix if you know what you're doing. That was stupid. But like dryers are easy to fix. They're not complicated machines. Washing machines are way more complicated. And if you don't know what you're doing, you're going to be spending a lot of your cash on uh, repair people. And I mean, they break frequently because they're being used all the time. Yeah. Good to know. I, I, yeah, I ultimately did not go forward with that, but those, those were all brand new machines. So that was one of the reasons I liked it because they were under warranty for a little bit longer. You can just stock up on parts. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, you can have all the parts you want if you don't know where they go. You just have a big pile of parts. I've tried to fix my own dryer with YouTube videos. It didn't go well. The appliance guy still came. <laughs> oh. It seems simple when you watch the YouTube video. Carl was able to fix our dryer. Not all of us can be Carl, Mindy, unfortunately. So. Well, I'm sorry that you can't be Carl because he's pretty awesome. Well, Tim, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing your remarkable story here. And what, what, is, even, what is the most remarkable thing about your story is how unremarkably it started from a financial perspective. You, you joined the Peace Corps, lived abroad, started your business with $35,000, really close to nothing. Um, besides that, put everything into the business. I mean, this is something that um, a lot of people, I think, can repeat. Um, to, to a certain extent is the success that you've had. Uh, all it takes is um, that to get to that overnight success is that those nine years of, of hard work uh, in between. Uh, and then you have all these, these incredible life options. So thank you so much for sharing the story and, and for the powerful um, lesson that I think it will hopefully bring to a lot of listeners. Thank you for having me. I hope it, uh, I hope it resonates with some of the listeners. And if uh, anybody needs help, I'm, I'm happy to, to, to chat. All right, Tim, before we head out, we're gonna, I think we're going to skip some of the famous four today, but we want to hear two of the most important questions, which are where, where can people find out more about you and what is your favorite joke to tell at parties? So my favorite joke to tell at parties is something my 10-year-old found, 10-year-old found in her daily dad jokes. It is, what do you get when you mix alcohol and literature? Tequila Mockingbird. Ah, oh, that's awesome. That's a really spirited joke. She, she saved that for me because of my industry. Um, and uh, people can find out more about me. I 
am on Instagram, Tim T. Delaney. And I have a uh, website that I set up uh, called thepowerofbiz.com. And if you go to powerofbiz.com slash BP money, I actually put my uh, Excel spreadsheet up there for people to download so that they can kind of a very basic how to analyze a business. Um, if it helps anybody else, I'm, I'd be happy. Awesome. We will link to all of those things um, at the show notes so you can find all those links and, and find Tim and, and all, all his stuff there. So um, do you have any tips for lead generation? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Great. I, I well, Tim, that. thank you so much. <laughs> Great to have you on the show today. We appreciate it. And um, best of luck in the, with the, all the, the, the ventures that are going on right now. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. All right. That was Tim. That was an amazing story. Scott, that was a great find. I love his story. You found Tim uh, and suggested we bring him on the show. And like you said in the intro, if you have a great story about buying a business or starting a business and growing it, we would love to highlight you on this show. Please apply at biggerpockets.com slash guest and let us know right there in the uh, application that you have a business that you want to talk about. Yes, we want more Tims on the show, right? And, and, and the problem problem with some Tims is they're like, oh, my story is not that remarkable. I didn't do anything. Yes, it is. <laughs> we want to hear about you buying a small business and growing it over a decade into something that enables you to have financial freedom and lots of optionality and a staff to run it for you and that you've improved. That's, that's I think, uh, the, the best asset class in America today. Yeah, well, I think... I think a lot of people feel like their story is boring. It's not sexy. I won the lottery is sexy. But how did you do that? Was it through hard work? No, it was luck. Luck is not repeatable. But people can learn from your story that is boring. And I'm doing air quotes if you're just listening and not watching on YouTube. But if it's a boring story, that means it's most likely repeatable. I did this. And when it's repeatable, people can take tips from you, learn more, and to take this into action and do it themselves. So that's what we're looking for. If your story is boring, we love you. We love boring. Repeatable. Repeatable. Yeah, bore, it's not boring. It's pronounced repeatable. And that's what we want to share. All right, Scott, should we get out of here? Let's do it. From episode 325 of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, he is Scott Trench, and I am Mindy Jensen saying, stay classy. reason small multifamily investing is so popular in the bigger pockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units. Think about it. If you house hack and live in one of the units, you still have three different groups of tenants helping to pay down your mortgage each month, four kitchens and bathrooms you can renovate to increase your property value, four different Airbnbs, medium-term rentals, or other rental strategies you can try in one property, all in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can afford? Which market and which deal is best for you? Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down by four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? These are all great questions, all to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devtha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four today and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. That's biggerpockets.com slash F-O-U-R. See you there.
The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.